Good morning. I am honored to be here and I want to say thank you very much for inviting me to come and share this week with you and to talk about what to me is the most exciting thing in the world to talk about is the faithfulness of God. And I really love to start the, the lesson with a song like that right before we begin because this is about God. This is about being right with Him and the faithfulness that He shows to us. We're going to talk this morning about something we find in the book of Romans, chapter 12. If you want to grab your pew Bibles and follow along, we'll also have the Scriptures up on the screen. And we're going to talk about a message that's there for you and I in Romans chapter 12. To begin with though, I want to give you just a little background to catch you up to Romans 12 because ordinarily when we study or read a book, we don't start in chapter 12, we start in chapter 1 to kind of get caught up. So, just by way of a small quick review, chapter 1 of Romans, Paul says to the Gentiles, which is probably most all of us here today, Gentile was anyone who wasn't a Jew, he says, you know... You're wrong in the eyes of God. You're guilty in the eyes of God. You've done things that were sinful. And you know you've done things that were sinful because you violated what he calls in chapter 2, the law and the heart. Now you and I all know that's true, don't we? You've done things that you knew were wrong when you did it, and you did it anyway. Every one of us is guilty before God. In chapter 2 and 3, he moves on to talk to the Jews who they had the law of God. They were holy. They were men of God. They were His children, His chosen people, descendants of Abraham. And they said, we're not like those Gentiles. We had God's law. And he says, yeah, you had God's law, but what good did it do you? You didn't obey it. You had the written law of God, but you still did what He told you not to do. In the end of chapter 3, he says, the truth is, there's none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned before God. Everybody that ever lived. So that presents him a very difficult question for reasonable people, and that is this. How can a just God be just and say that guilty people are innocent? Doesn't work. Just judges don't say guilty people are innocent, do they? That's an unjust judge. So how can God be a just judge and say that guilty people are innocent? And his answer to that is Romans 4 and 5. He says, your righteous or goodness and rightness with God is not based on the things you do, but it's based on Jesus Christ. You see, we're saved by His life, by the things that He did, not by the things that we do. And God sent a payment for sin. And that payment for sin was the blood of Jesus Christ. He finishes chapter 5 by saying this, that is so important, that is so valuable, that no matter how much sin you have in your life, and if you're like me, you're probably aware of a pretty significant pile of sin in your life, right? No matter how much sin there is, there's enough grace to cover that sin. Isn't that good news? I mean, that's wonderful news. And the natural reaction to that is, really? I mean, I can have lots of sin and it's all covered by grace? Absolutely. Well, my natural reaction, like most people, is, 
hey, that's cool. <laughs> I can do whatever I want to do, and there's enough grace to cover it. And that's what he says in Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And in Romans 6, 7, and 8, he says this, you can't have the life of Jesus, I mean, excuse me, the death of Jesus, if you don't want the life. You can't have one without the other. They're two sides of the same coin. You see, you're buried into His death by baptism. You're raised to walk in what? If you know the Scriptures, you know He says a new life. A different life. You're raised to be different than you were before. You see, if you really come to God, if you really stand justified, your life's going to change. It's going to be different. Now the Jews, very upset about this whole thing, the righteous Jews, this is not fair at all. How can God send His Son to die for all these nasty Gentiles that never even followed Him to begin with and say that they're right? That's just not fair. And Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11, how dare you question God? He's God. He doesn't come to your courtroom. You go to His. You're not His judge. He is your judge. How dare you? He is sovereign. And if He wants to create you and destroy you, He has every right to do that. However, what He in His sovereignty has said is this, I'll justify those who have faith in My Son. Then we get to chapter 12. I love the writings of the Apostle Paul. Because he always begins with theology, and then part the way through the book, normally half or a little further into the book, he says, okay, therefore... Because you see, to the Apostle Paul, theology was fine in figuring out and understanding that. Not, a, not just fine, it's important and critical. But to the Apostle Paul, if it didn't make any difference in your life, what good was it? And so here's where we begin in Romans chapter 12 today. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now let's start with the word beseech. You know what the word beseech means? I beseech you means this. It means I beg you. I'm imploring you. I'm admonishing you. I'm saying, hey, come on guys. Listen up. This matters. I'm begging you, do this. It's pleading with someone. Have you ever pled with anybody to do something? I mean, really tried to convince them? Really tried to encourage them to do something that was important for them? That's what Paul's saying. I beg you. And he says, I beg you by the mercies of God. Now, why would he put that phrase, the mercies of God, in here? You know what he's talking about there? What's he just been talking about? You didn't deserve to be saved. You've done nothing to be right with God. And He has called you righteous anyway. Brothers and sisters and friends, that's mercy. That's what it is. He said that's the mercy of God. He says, I am begging you by the mercy of God that I want you to do something. What is that He wants you to do? He says, I want you to present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice. Now let's talk about a couple of things in that verse. Number one, he says your bodies. There's no Gnosticism here. There's no, well, the spirit is holy and good and the body is evil, so don't worry about what the bodies do. Paul knows that if you're really right with God spiritually, it's going to show up in your body, in your flesh, in the things that you do. Christianity is not honk if you love Jesus. That's not Christianity. Now, there's nothing wrong in honking if you love Jesus. That's fine. But that's not Christianity. He says, you present your bodies. That's your hands and your feet and your knees and your elbows and your tongue and your eyes and your lips. You present those to God as a living sacrifice. You know what a living sacrifice is? Well, first off, living sacrifice almost seems to be an oxymoron, doesn't it? You know what an oxymoron is? That's something that's impossible. It's like a true lie. You can't have a true life. It's a lie. It's not true. What's a living sacrifice? Isn't a sacrifice something you kill? I mean, that, what they did with sacrifices? He says, I want you to present your bodies to Christ as an offering that's alive. You, see, he goes ahead here and he says, which is your reasonable service. A living sacrifice is reasonable. A dead sacrifice is not. What good is a dead sacrifice? I mean, God's not hungry. He's not going to eat the lamb, right? What benefit to God and His kingdom is a dead lamb? Well, it's of no benefit at all. But your life, what you do with your hands and your mouth, that can benefit the kingdom. You see, there's a reasonable, logical, valuable thing for you to do with your body. But now here's a puzzling question. Hasn't he just spent chapter after chapter telling us that we're not the sacrifice for our sin? Remember, he said, you've all sinned and you're all guilty, but the sacrifice is Jesus Christ. We're saved by His works. We're justified by His life. And by His blood, we're made right in the eyes of God, not by our own. He just spent chapter after chapter telling you and I, we're not the sacrifice. So why does he turn around now and say, we need to be a sacrifice, that it's reasonable that I be a sacrifice? That almost seems contradictory to all of Romans up to this point. Unless you stop and think about the sacrifices in the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, there were two different types of sacrifices that were offered. One was a sin offering. A sin offering was an offering that was given as a result of sin, asking God for forgiveness of that sin. And He says to you and I, Jesus is your sin offering. He is the perfect Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world that was offered as payment for your sin. But there was another type of offering that they were commanded to give that they gave over and over and over. And that other type of offering was what's called a thank offering. And that was an offering of appreciation for sin, or appreciation rather for blessings that had been given to us. Now, we all understand that concept, don't we? 
My children get birthday gifts from their grandparents. I assume your kids probably do too, or your grandkids, you send them gifts. You know what my wife makes my kids do? You need to write a thank you note to Grandma. Why? So I get more gifts? No. Because you're expressing your appreciation for their thoughtfulness of you, for their mercies, for their gift, their benefit that you received from them. Now you see, it's a fundamental piece of Christianity that when I serve God, I don't do it as a sin offering. I don't do it in order to get Him to forgive me. I do it as a thank offering because He has forgiven me. You know what? That's pretty important for us to understand. That's pretty fundamental to Christianity. You see, I don't treat my wife good in order to get her to be my wife. Of course, I did it one time, I guess. <laughs> but I treat her good because I love her. And there's no amount of rules that could make me do the things for my wife that my love makes me do for my wife. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Can I get a little head nod, yes or no? Is this making sense to everybody? So he's saying, I want you to be a thank offering with your body. I say, Lord, here's, here's the hands. Use them. Use them for your kingdom. Here's my feet, Lord. Here's, here's my wallet, Lord. Use it for your kingdom. Here's my home, Lord. Use it for your kingdom. Everything I have, Lord, I want to give it to you. Use it for your kingdom. Then he goes ahead and he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why would he talk about this right here? He's just told us, I'm begging you by the mercy of God, give your body to God as a living sacrifice. And then he says, don't be conformed to the world. Do you all know what that's a picture of? That's a chameleon. You know what a chameleon is? It's a lizard. And it's a lizard that changes color based on what you put it on. If you lay the chameleon up here on this carpet, it would kind of get <clears throat> stripes and little blocks on it. If you put it on here, it would look wood grain. If you put it on my tie, it would turn red. Interesting side note about chameleons. Even blind chameleons change color. Did you know that? It's interesting. don't know why, it's just interesting. He says, don't be a chameleon. That's what the word conformed means. It means don't be changed to the same image that you see all around you. Don't be like what surrounds you because that's what a chameleon does. Now, why does a chameleon become like what it's around? Why does it do that? Well, to avoid being attacked, right? That's why a chameleon changes color. So the predator won't see it and it'll just go right along and say, oh, there's another piece of wood and, and go on its way and not see the chameleon and attack it. You know, for you and I as Christians, we live in the world, but we're not really in the world, are we? There's a picture of a young man on an airplane. I tried to take a, a picture like this of Jackson. We got on an airplane early this morning and flew from Dallas here to Amarillo. 
And I tried to recreate this picture and I couldn't get a good photo of it. This kid, is he in the sky? Would you say he's in the sky? Well, uh, yeah, he's in the sky. 35,000 feet, it's 75 degrees below zero and there's not enough oxygen to breathe. Kid looks pretty comfortable to me. Well, he's, he's in the sky, but he's in an airplane. So he's in the sky, but he's not in the sky, right? I believe this is a good analogy of you and I as Christians. Are you in the world? Well, yeah, you're in the world. But you're not in the world. You're in Christ in the world. You see, it's different. In Christ, we have all spiritual blessings. In Christ, there are things that are different than the world around us. So, because I'm in Christ, wouldn't it be silly for that kid to grab an oxygen mask and, and be wearing a great big heavy coat? He said, well, we're in the sky and it's 75 below and there's not oxygen. Well, there is where you are. You don't act like you're out on the wing because you're not out on the wing. You're in a reasonably comfortable airplane seat. You can adjust the little temperature thing and drink your little Coke and your snack. Eat your snack. He's saying that's what Christianity is like. You don't conform to the world because you're not in the world. You're in Christ Jesus. You don't look like the world because you're in Jesus. So you need to look like someone who's in Jesus looks like. There should be a change, you see. Heard an old preacher telling a story years ago about an itinerant preacher, a guy that just traveled all around and preached, and he went up to the northwest of Oregon and Washington Territory back years ago, and he just traveled and preached, and he met an old logger. And he converted that logger. Taught him about Jesus, and the guy obeyed the Gospel. And, and a year later, he was traveling back in that area, and he said, I'm going to go find that guy. And he went around to the logging camps until he finally found the guy. And he said, hey, how are you? And he said, I'm good. He said, how's it going? He said, pretty good. I don't think anyone knows yet. You know, a lot of times, that's kind of the pressure we're put under, isn't it? You don't want to speak up. You don't want to be too different. Let me give you an example. The topic of same-sex marriage comes up. Do you say anything when you're at work or at school? Do you speak up? Do you say anything about what God's Word says about that? If you do, you know who's going to be attacked next, don't you? Don't you know? You might say, well, it's just not always the proper time and place to speak. I understand that. But you know what that is? Usually that's an excuse. You know why I usually don't speak up? Because I'm the chameleon and I don't want to get attacked. And Paul is saying, as a Christian, you can't be that way. You've got to be different. You have to speak the way God's people speak. You see, we don't do the things that the world does. 
And God's people have always been like that. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? God told them what to do as Israelites to serve Him. The king comes along and he says, when you hear the trumpet, I want you to bow down and worship this idol. What did they do? Well, we don't worship idols. Now, you know what they could have done? You ever think about this? They could have got down on their knees and pretended to worship the idol, but gone, you know, in my heart, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to do that. And they'll never know it. Isn't that the kind of the way we think sometimes? Not these guys. Hey, pagans get on the ground and worship idols. We don't. We're God's people. We worship Him. And I'm not going to do anything that looks like I'm worshiping an idol. Why? Because I'm not going to conform to the world. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be transformed. The word there in the Greek is metamorphosis. That's where we get our word metamorphosis. It's metamorpho. You know what metamorphosis is? It's when the caterpillar crawls inside a cocoon and it changes, it transforms inside that cocoon and a butterfly climbs out of the cocoon. You know what that, that worm is doing, that little caterpillar is doing in that cocoon? It's becoming what it really is. Now, you've seen a cocoon, haven't you? looks like a dead stick. In fact, you probably wouldn't notice it unless you're looking for it because it just looks like a dead stick. But Paul is saying to you and I as Christians, you are not a dead stick spiritually. You're alive. You are spotless, blameless, the child of God. That's what the Scriptures say about the church. That we're spotless and blameless without any blemish. Do you act like you're spotless and blameless? Well, you know, I, I just don't feel like that's true about me. I don't think that's true about me. I, you know, I, I know the Bible says the church is spotless and blameless. Maybe the organization of the church is spotless and blameless, but you know, I, I griped at my kids yesterday because I was just in a bad mood. It wasn't their fault. I'm not spotless and blameless. I don't feel like that. You see, what Paul is saying here is to you and I as Christians, that's what you are, so act like it. That's what he's telling us. That's what you... You are a child of the living God. Have you ever thought about that? Now, many of you here know my father, Jerry McCorkle. I'm proud of my dad. I'm proud to be his son. He has lived a life that uh, has opened a lot of doors for me because of the way he lived and because of the things that he's done in his life. I'm proud of that. But you know what I'm more proud of? You know who my father is? I mean, he's more powerful than Obama or Putin. He's the God of the universe. He's my dad. He's my father, my real father. And if you're a Christian, that's true of you too, brothers and sisters. And he says, because of that, I want you 
to be transformed. I want you to change. I want you to be different. You see, when you were born again, what part of you changed? What part of you was born again when you were baptized? you remember that? Those of you who have been baptized, do you remember when you were baptized? You went down in the water and you got wet and you came back up and you were now a child of God? Did you still have the same moles and freckles you had when you went down under the water? Yeah. Your body didn't change, did it? I mean, you didn't all of a sudden lose 50 pounds. The same body you always had. Your metabolism didn't all of a sudden change. Your body wasn't made new. You weren't born again in your body. Well, what about your, your emotions? Do you still get mad about the same stuff you used to get mad about? Well, yeah. Emotions didn't change. I mean, you had good emotion at the moment that you became a Christian. But you emotionally didn't change. Your intellect... Did your intelligence all of a sudden jump 50 points? We might like to think it did, but the truth is it didn't jump 50 points. You're still the same person. You, well, what was born again? Well, according to Scripture, you're born again in your spirit, you see. You have a new spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in you, and now you are a new person spiritually, but not physically. Not mentally or emotionally. The challenge for you and I as Christians is to make this physical body live like I am spiritually in the eyes of God. That's our challenge. That's our job. You see, He tells us how to do that in the next passage or the next part of that verse. He says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, it's my firm conviction that what Jesus said, He said the truth will set you free. It's my firm conviction that's true. Truth will set you free. And it's also my firm conviction that the truth is found in the Word of God. And so the way I begin to change my life and actually begin to act like I am in the eyes of God is I begin to change what's in here. You see, that's changing the programming. That's not changing the computer. The computer's already been changed. But Jason could tell you if you take the same old programs and put them on a new computer, they're going to do the same old stuff, right? You've got to update the programming. And that's what he's talking about here. I've got a picture up here of a clock. You know, if you were to get on an airplane and fly to Japan, and I don't know exactly what the time difference is, but let's just say it's six hours. You fly to Japan, you leave the United States at 6 p.m., and you get to Japan, and it's midnight. Well, it's 6 p.m. to them. It's midnight to you. And you get off that plane and somebody meets you there at the airport and they say, hey, I tell you what, let's go get some supper. And you go, are you kidding me? It's midnight. I'm tired. I've been on an airplane. I want to go to bed. So you go up into your hotel room and you go to bed and you sleep eight hours. And you wake up and look at your clock and you go, oh, eight in the morning. I'm hungry. I'm like to have a little breakfast, and you go downstairs and you ask the person at the front desk, where do I get breakfast? They say, are you crazy? It's 2 o'clock in the morning. 
You see, if you're just visiting Japan, it's okay to leave your watch on Texas time. But if you're moving to Japan, you've got to change your clock, don't you? Now, brothers and sisters, if you're just visiting the kingdom of God, you can keep your clock set on immoral worldly. But if you're moving to the kingdom of God, you've got to change your clock. You've got to change some things that need to change for you to live in that world, you see. And that's what he's talking about here. We, re- we renew our mind. How do you do that? Well, you do that very clearly and simply by following what things are said in the Bible. Look at this. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You know what that means to you and me? That means you need to know God's Word and talk about it all the time. Do you do that? You know why you need to know God's Word and talk about it all the time? Because the things you think control the things you do. Why are you here right now? Now, some of you may be here because mom and dad badgered you to come and said, you're going to church today. But most of you are here. Why? Because you thought about going to church this morning, right? You got up and you thought, well, we need to get around. It's almost time for us to go to church. You thought about that, so you came here. Your thoughts controlled your behavior. Do y'all remember Andrea Yates? Y'all know who that is? Some of you do. A woman in Houston, Texas that drowned all of her children in a bathtub. You hear a story like that and you go, how could anybody do that? And there's... There's all kinds of theories and people say, well, she had postpartum depression and she had this and that. I know exactly why she killed her children. I do. I heard her with her own lips tell why she killed her children. You know why she did it? Because that's what she thought about doing. She said, if you only knew how many times I thought about killing my kids before I did. Well, you know what? If you sit around and think about killing your kids, you're eventually going to kill your kids. Now, if you fill your mind with righteousness and godliness, guess what's going to happen? It's just going to become the way you are. You're going to start thinking like Jesus. And when you start thinking like Jesus, you're going to start acting like Jesus. Look at this passage. David said this, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law He meditates day and night. Your law is my delight. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. He says, I think about it all the time, God. Now, David did some stuff he shouldn't have done. But the Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. You want to be a man after God's own heart? Love is law. Think about it. Read it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Talk to other people about it. Talk to people at work and talk to people at school and talk to your neighbors and your friends and your kids and your parents. Because that will convert 
your behavior. That'll change you. It'll make you what God wants you to be. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Paul said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He said, we have the mind of Christ. And he told us to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. You find that over and over and over in the New Testament Scriptures. It's not just in the old, it's in the new. That's why Craig and Carrie asked me to come this week to talk to you about God's Word. You know why? Because they know as elders that you need to think about God's Word this week. They know that. And they want me to come talk with you about God's Word every day this week. Why? Because of this very thing that we're talking about. That's what changes us and makes my life a reasonable living sacrifice that glorifies and honors God and furthers His kingdom. That's what makes me different. So you see, for a preacher to stand up here in this pulpit and tell you to read your Bible, that's not just something holy that preachers say. That's the way you fix your problems. Do you have a problem with bitterness? You'll fix it by going to God's Word and reading and memorizing and meditating on what God's Word says about bitterness. You have a problem with lust? You'll fix that by going into God's Word and reading and memorizing and meditating on what God's Word says about lust. You have kids and you need to raise them. You need to know how to be a good parent. You'll fix that by going into God's Word and reading and memorizing and meditating on the passages that tell you how to be a good dad or a good mom. That's what makes us different. Look at this. God said, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. In that picture there, you've got somebody holding up a Bible to their head. and In my mind, they're probably praying or memorizing or meditating on something they've memorized. You're not going to get it by osmosis. You're not going to get it by laying your head on it. You're not going to get it by putting it on the nightstand by your bed. You're going to get it by thinking about it and putting it in there and meditating on it. Talking about it. He says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, you know that God's going to hold you accountable for what you do with your hands, right? If you take them and steal with them, God holds you accountable for that, right? You know that. You know God's going to hold you accountable for the things that come out of your mouth, right? I mean, we know that. Jesus said, by your words you'll be justified or by your words you'll be condemned. We know God holds me accountable for how we use our tongues. God also holds you accountable for how you use your mind. Your mind, your brain is a piece of your body and God expects and requires you and I to take our thoughts captive for Jesus Christ. That means whether I want to think that way or not, it's what God said, so that's what I think. Whether I think that's going to work best in my life situation or not, you know what, that's what God said and that's got to be true. That's just the way it is. 
And when I begin to think His thoughts, and I take my thoughts captive, you know one thing I've learned about reading the Bible? When I read, a lot of times I'll find passages, I'll go, yeah, that's right, Paul. You tell them, that's right. Amen, brother. Those aren't the ones I need to work on. You know the ones I need to work on is when I'm reading, I'm going, I don't know about that. You know what that tells me? That tells me that that's a spot where my mind hasn't been taken captive for Jesus Christ. And that's what I need to work on. This week, we're going to talk about God's Word. This week, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to convict you, hopefully, with God's Word some. I'm going to encourage and motivate you, hopefully. Because this week, we're going to focus on the Word of God and how it challenges and affects us in our lives. The purpose of the lesson this morning has been to call you to be serious in our study. It's been to call you not to just be serious in our study this week, but to go and start making yourself different by renewing your mind. Make yourself different by thinking about God's Word. Thinking about how He wants me to behave. What He wants me to think about any issue that you can come up with. God has direction on that. I hope you've been motivated and encouraged. We're going to sing a song of invitation. We always do that at the end of a lesson. The reason we do that is because there may be somebody whose heart has been touched by the Word of God in that lesson. You may have something that you need to bring before the congregation. You may have a prayer that you need the elders of the church to pray for you, or a struggle or a problem that you need help with. You may be sitting here going, you know what, I haven't even started on this journey. I better get started. We can help you do that today too. We offer a song of invitation. If there's a special need you need to bring before the congregation, please come to the front while we stand and sing.